I am not an artist. That has never been my gift. Even in elementary school, it was pretty clear that uh, when the pastels and paints and tissue paper came out, that was not my time to shine. I may have been gifted even early a little more with words than with art. So you can imagine my distress when I ended up at a small liberal arts college in Texas and learned that I had to take a class in the art department. I mean, it wasn't that I didn't want to learn about painting or sculpting uh, or pottery. It's just I was really afraid of what that might do to my GPA. Um, and so I was thankful when I finally found the class that I thought was made just for me. Uh, it was called Art Appreciation. <laughs> I thought, well, if I can't make art, at least I can appreciate it. And I did. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, today, the message that I want to share with you might fall under that category of art appreciation. Uh, it's the story of two of the greatest artists that the world has ever known and the missing link between the two of them. The first is one of the greatest sculptors of the 15th century, Donatello. And the second, who you know, obviously, is the greatest sculptor and artist of the 16th century, Michelangelo also possibly, possibly the greatest artist the world has ever known. These two never met. Michelangelo was born nine years after Donatello's death. And Michelangelo, of course, is the more famous of the two. His Sistine Chapel ceiling is one of the wonders of the world. His statue of David is possibly the best known sculpture in the world. But a lot of people don't know that Donatello also created a statue of David that came first. It was cast almost 75 years before Michelangelo's. Of the two statues of David, one is marble, the other bronze. One stands five feet tall, the other 13. Uh, they look vastly different, different, don't they? But there are some interesting similarities in form and subject. Both of them are of David the warrior. One pictures him before going into battle, the other one after the same battle. And if we were in art appreciation class today, we might take a look at the techniques, uh, the ways that these artists created these great works and find that there are some eerie similarities, not just in the subject matter, but in the tools that they used, in the, in the skills that they had, in the techniques that they applied. And it almost might seem to us that Michelangelo had studied with Donatello to learn from him. But we know, right, that's not possible because one was born seven years after the other died. So what is their connection? How is that possible? Well, their connection is one man, this man, Bertoldo de Giovanni. He is the missing link in this story. Uh, you'll notice for your art appreciation final that the dates of his life overlap with the years of both Donatello's and Michelangelo's. Even though those two never met, his years stand in the gap in between. A little more on that later. Bertoldo's name is definitely not as famous in the world of art as either Donatello's or Michelangelo's. Let's just say what we're all thinking. Clearly, there is no Ninja Turtle named after Bertoldo de Giovanni. <laughs> you know you were thinking it. So he may not have been Ninja Turtle worthy, 
like the other two, Donatello and Michelangelo, but he is the link between the two of them. Growing up in Italy, Bertoldo de Giovanni wanted to be a great artist. And so he knew of the great sculptor, Donatello, and he asked that artist if he could be his apprentice, if he could be mentored under him. And then after Donatello's death, as Bertoldo was growing in his own capacities, he became a mentor to the young man, Michelangelo. He was the student of one and the teacher of the other. And he holds the distinction of being the art teacher of the greatest artist, perhaps, that the world has ever known. And so his claim to fame, his skill, maybe is not as an artist, but as a mentor. Michelangelo's work shows that Donatello, uh, he was back there in history, but Michelangelo couldn't access all of his teaching except that he did through Bertoldo. Even though those two men never met, Bertoldo di Giovanni provided that link between, uh, in history, passing down those lessons from one generation, one century to another. And I would imagine that if Bertoldo could talk to us today, he would say, I wanted you to know my name. I wanted to be a great artist. I wanted you to see my works and think of me even after I was gone. Uh, the truth is we do, because his greatest work of art was his student, Michelangelo himself. Whether he knew it or not, Bertoldo was a master of the great art of mentoring. Now, mentoring is a word that's used in all kinds of circles these days, right? Uh, but when we use it in the Christian world, we often use the term discipling. And, and we're in a year of a life of discipleship. We know that this is how Christians are created and how Christians grow. And while in the corporate world it may be a modern trend, mentoring was not invented last Tuesday. It is actually an ancient art. One of the most famous mentoring stories in history is a relationship between the legendary Old Testament prophet Elijah and his student, Elisha. Now, I have to get my pronunciation down just to tell this story, and you have to tune your ears, so let's distinguish between the two. Elijah was the older of the two. He was among the most remarkable prophets that Israel had ever known. He performed miracles. He even raised someone from the dead. He called down fire from heaven. He went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the prophets of Baal, over 400 to one. And then after he won, he ran away and got depressed. He even told God that he wanted to die. And amid that great depression in his life, he heard the still, small voice of God. And one of the things that Elijah heard from God's still small voice was that he was to go and find and raise up a successor for himself, a, a younger man named Elisha. And I love how one of the answers to Elijah's depression was a pupil, an apprentice, someone to travel with him, someone who would become as close as his own son. Never think that in a discipler and disciple relationship, all of the gifts are given to the disciple. Here in Elijah's story, when God encountered a burned out, depressed prophet, he gave him a pupil, a disciple, an apprentice to walk with him. Those of you who are here uh, to learn from some of the greatest minds in theological education, you know what a blessing they are to you. 
you might have no idea what kind of blessing you are to them. So the very way that the prophet Elijah approached and recruited Elisha was abrupt and unceremonious, very much like Elijah's personality. Prophetic leaders who are full of wisdom are not always overflowing with people skills, let's just say. I love the story of how Elijah approached Elisha while the younger man was plowing a field for his family. How Elijah, without a word of instruction or explanation, ran up to Elisha on the plow and took his mantle, his, his cloak, the symbol of the prophet's authority, and threw it across the younger man's shoulders, still on the plow, and then turned as if he were going to walk away. If that was it. The symbolism was clear. It was like a game of, of prophetic tag, right? He simply said, you're it, I'm done, good luck, you're the new prophet. This is the story where we get the phrase, the passing of the mantle. And don't you wish, don't you wish that your call to ministry was so simple, right? No seminary, no boards of ordained ministry. Someone just ran up to you while you were doing something else, threw the mantle over your shoulders, and you knew this was your calling, clarity would be a beautiful thing. So Elijah just threw this mantle over Elisha and turned to walk away, but Elisha kind of knew that he needed to follow, right? That that wasn't it. That wasn't all there was to it, that if he was going to be a prophet as great as Elijah, he needed to walk with Elijah. He needed to watch and listen, to ask him questions, to learn from him. And he asked just for one thing, a moment to go back and say goodbye to his old life. He took the oxen that he had been plowing with, and he killed them. He, he took the plow, and, and he broke it apart, and he burned the plow and cooked the oxen as a last meal, a sort of goodbye barbecue for friends and neighbors. And, and he ran off to follow the prophet Elijah. If anyone has ever literally burned their bridges in ministry, it was Elisha. Some of you have had a moment like this, can't go back to farming now. The cross before me, the world behind, let's go, God. No turning back. Now, there was nothing wrong with farming. Farmers serve Jesus, don't they? But Elisha knew that if God was calling him to something new, there would be no turning back. And so he joined Elijah. He linked up in this chain of faith, linking with someone he could follow and learn from, someone who would help him grow. Have you ever wondered how Christianity has persisted over 2,000 years now? When it originally started as a movement of just 12, I mean, let's face it, pretty inept followers? How is it still going today? When Jesus began his ministry, he, he knew that he only had a short time in the flesh to change the world, to make sure the message that he had would stick and that it would continue long after his three years of walking physically on the earth. How did he do that? Did he create a mission statement and a vision path? Did he start a capital campaign and build something really great? Did he write a lot of books? Did he find just the right program or curriculum? What did Jesus spend most of his time doing? He invested in the lives of 12 people and the crowds, but really the 12. 
He knew that changing their lives was the most important thing that he could do in person to change the world in a lasting way because changed lives change lives. People who know Jesus tell other people about Jesus. It sounds just a little too simple to be true. I mean, this would be a, a short syllabus, right? One disciple finding another and mentoring them. I mean, also filled with the transforming strength and power of the Holy Spirit, there's that. But starting with just 12 disciples, this simple path has led to multiple billions of people around the world today following Christ. This chain of faith from the beginning passed down one link to the next. Discipling happens one by one by one. And believe it or not, you are actually one of those links. You have a place in this chain linked all the way back to Jesus. If I try to think back to one of the first people who was a link for me on that chain of faith, the name that comes to mind is Tish Massey. Mrs. Massey was my piano teacher starting at age eight for over 10 years. Every Tuesday afternoon, my mom would drive me up to her front walk, drop me off at her doorstep, and I would walk into her house where she took me first, not, not to the piano, but to the kitchen, where she gave me a glass of milk and a little Debbie snack cake. This was an important detail for an eight-year-old because we didn't have little Debbie snack cakes at my house, so it was a very special treat every Tuesday. And then when we were done, when she had asked me about my day and talked to me for a while, then we would go to her living room and sit down at the grand piano where Mrs. Massey taught me about music every Tuesday for 10 years. But that's not all she taught me. She was teaching me about life and about faith. Mrs. Massey was also the choir director at my little Methodist church. And she was the one who encouraged me as a very nervous 10-year-old to get up and sing my first solo in church. Terrifying. When I was 17 years old, she made me the director of the preschool choir. I mean, who trusts a 17-year-old with that? Probably nobody else would do it. She put me up in front of the church again and again to sing. And, and finally, she would say, Jessica, why don't you say a few words about that song? Why don't you tell the congregation what it means to you before you sing it? And then the next time, she would ask me to say a few more words. And then there was more speaking and a little less singing. And by the time Mrs. Massey was done with me, I was a preacher. <laughs> I mean, literally, that's kind of how it happened. I don't know if you've ever thought that music ministry was about entertainment, but it is not. Not the way Danny Key does it here. It's about discipleship. It's about helping people be transformed into the image of Christ through music. Mrs. Massey believed in me. She saw something in me that I didn't see in myself for another decade or so. And no one ever assigned her or paid her to teach me about anything other than music. But I am so thankful she did, that God called her to pour her life into young people. And I am so thankful I was one of them. You have people like this in your life too, don't you? You, you can pull up their names to mine pretty quickly. You can pull up their faces. People who pointed you to ministry Maybe people who pointed you to Christ, first of all. 
by what they said, yes, but a lot of it was just what they did, wasn't it? How they treated you. You saw Jesus in them, and you wanted that for yourself. But here's the other part of this equation that we have a hard time thinking about sometimes. Just as you can think of people whose lives have been influential for you, those of faith, who helped you understand the character of Christ by how they lived, just as you watched how they lived and listened to what they said, there are people out there, even now, looking to you. A link in a chain is connected not just backwards, but forwards. There are people out there, even now, who are looking to you, people who consider your witness, your life, a living image of Christ before them. That is hard to fathom. And it's hard to remember sometimes, especially in seminary, right? Where it seems sometimes like maybe you're taking a break from ministry to prepare for ministry. Let me just tell you that the idea that you and ministry are on a break while you're here, that's a deadly idea. It could convince you that ministry is something that you only get a paycheck to do. That the only relationships in which you influence people for Christ are the ones that your job description tells you you have to. And that's just not it at all. Your calling, all of our callings, is the same one that God gave to Abram and Sarai and to their offspring all the way back in Genesis 12. You are blessed to be a blessing. Now, there are two ways we get that wrong. We sometimes forget we're supposed to receive blessings. We forget that we need to be blessed. We work as if it all depends on us. Our gifts, our smarts, our effort. We forget that God wants to pour into us as vessels of grace. And thinking that we can pour out blessing without receiving it is a recipe for burnout and then dropout. We need to be blessed. We also need to be a blessing. The other way we get it wrong is to forget that we're called to be a blessing, that we were created to be vessels, not containers. God wants to move his grace not just to us. It doesn't stop. He wants to move his grace through us. There are those out there that God wants to pour into through you, and you don't get to take a break from that while you study. You are blessed to be a blessing. Look around you. The people you spend your time with, the people you interact with, these are the people you are linking to Christ. Whether you're called mentor or minister, or whether you're called student or roommate or team member, spouse, parent, friend, those around you are learning from you about life with Christ. Scary thought. This is how it works. Whether you are set out to teach them or not, you are. This is the way that God works in and through us. There are those around you that are learning about life with Christ through how you behave, how you live. And sometimes you don't even know who it is. You can't even tell who's paying attention sometimes. When I was a young pastor in my mid-twenties, yes, Hunter, I was in my mid-twenties once, um, I was in my office one day when uh, a dad walked in with his little daughter, about seven years old, 
And he, he pushed her forward as she reluctantly entered my office. And he said, he said, Lauren, tell Reverend Jessica what you did. I thought, oh dear. It's never fun to be the forced confessional as a pastor, but, but I had it all wrong. That, that wasn't what he meant at all. He really meant tell Reverend Jessica what you did. And so she said to me in her little seven-year-old voice, she said, I was playing dress up. And he prompted her again. He said, and, and tell her what you wore. And he, she said, well, I went in my parents' closet and I got one of my daddy's ties and I put it on. And when she said, I put it on, she didn't do this. She didn't say she tied it. She said she put it on. She draped it across her shoulders, and she motioned that she had done that, not like a tie, but like a stole, like a prophet's mantle. And her dad said, and tell her, tell her who you were dressing up as. Who were you pretending to be? And she said, I was pretending to be you. And that blew my mind. I mean, the name on my door said pastor, but I did not know. I just didn't even know that a seven-year-old was watching. I mean, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, no matter who is around you, they're watching. They're there to be blessed, and you are there to be a blessing. People are observing your life learning from your relationships, from your conversations, from your faith. Lauren, by the way, the seven-year-old, uh, will enroll here at Asbury Seminary this fall. She will be one of your fellow students, and I can't wait to introduce you to her. Sometimes you can see it really young. Whether you know it or not, you are blessed to be a blessing. One of the greatest mentors of my life was a woman named Margaret Thurkelson. She uh, came and preached here, right, right here in this spot 20 years ago, and it blew me away. I had never heard anyone talk about Jesus the way she did. She talked about Jesus like she had just had coffee with him that morning, and it's because she did. And, and she um, was a woman of prayer, and I wanted to be a woman of prayer. And she wrote books, and I wanted to write books. And she uh, preached to people. I wanted to preach to people. And so I somehow got her phone number. And after she preached, I called her at her home. And my heart was beating really fast, and my palms were kind of sweaty. I felt like I was asking someone out on a date. Um, and I said, Mrs. Thurkelson, we met last Tuesday in chapel. Mrs. Thurkelson, would you, would you disciple me? Well, of course, honey, is what she said. And that's how I ended up in the living room of Margaret Thurkelson, one of the great authorities on prayer of our time. And we talked about Jesus together, and we talked to Jesus together. And one day we were talking about prayer. We talked about prayer a lot, how to be intimate and deep with Jesus. And I told her I knew she was a woman of prayer, and I knew I needed to grow a lot in that area. And I used a phrase that we often use when we're talking to someone like this. I said, Mrs. Thurkelson, I hope someday I can be just half the woman of prayer that you are. Have you ever said that to someone or about someone? I mean, we, it's a compliment, right? I thought it was, but I don't think I'll ever say that again because this is how she responded. She said, honey, don't you say that. Don't ever ask to be half of me. 
don't you know the story of Elijah and Elisha? I did, but I needed to go back and read it again to find out what it said. So after he heard the still small voice of God, Elijah tapped Elisha to be the next of the great prophets. Elijah had performed miracles, faced evil, raised people from the dead. He had changed the future of nations. But this relationship, I don't know, Dr. Arnold, this relationship, it might have been his greatest investment because Elisha followed him as his disciple and Elisha served him. One of the descriptions of Elisha in 2 Kings was that he was a man who poured water over the hands of Elijah. I think about that description a lot, about what it means to follow someone. It means to serve them as well. When they started out, when Elijah threw the mantle over Elisha, Elisha started following, acting as a servant, even calling Elijah master. But by the end of Elijah's story, they had grown so close in their time together that Elisha was calling Elijah father. In 2 Kings, there's this vivid story of how Elijah left the earth in true character, totally out of the normal, dramatically on a chariot of fire, but, but not before his protege, his student, was able to ask him for one more thing, one last lesson. Before Elijah could go, he said, what, what, what do you want me to do for you? And Elisha said, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Double portion. Give me double your blessing. Not, I hope to be half the prophet that you are someday, but double. Um, I want to be twice the man of God that you are. And most of the story of the prophet Elijah is told in 1 Kings, where depending on how you count, there are stories of miracles, about eight of them, and he raised one man from the dead. And whatever happened to his apprentice? Well, Elisha's story is recorded mostly in 2 Kings. Depending on how you count, Elisha performed just about double the number of miracles as Elijah, including raising two people from the dead a double portion of his leader's blessing. Now think about a man or woman of faith that you look up to. What if you could grow to be twice? Not for your glory, <laughs> not a stamp with your name on it. What if you could grow to be twice for God, who they are? Do twice what they have done for the Lord. Not, I wish I was half the person, but, Lord, a double portion of your blessing. Now, what if in every generation the church's strength doubled? What if it happened that way? What if instead of thinking, oh, oh, look at church history, look at what they did, look at who they were, I wish, I wish we could do half of that. No. What if the people that you're learning about, reading about, people that founded this place, the people who spread scriptural holiness around the world, that you just, you get all fired up reading their stories twice? Lord, what would the church look like? What would the world look like if we prayed for twice, if we lived into it? What if we gave it all for the benefit of the next generation coming behind us so they could be twice 
what we have seen in our generation. What would the church look like in just two generations if it doubled each time? Or 10 or 20? I mean, the kingdom of heaven on this earth. You, you probably came to seminary, I'm thinking, for, with great dreams for your ministry. But I just want to remind you this morning that your greatest work that you will do in life, that God's greatest idea is people. You can build lots of things in your life, but if you're not building up people, you are not building the kingdom of God. Elijah and Elisha teach us what can happen when two generations link together. They teach us it's possible to grow in strength and empower the Holy Spirit in each generation. How we invest our lives matters. That Christ can do more than a diminishing return when we give our lives to him. He can multiply the power of the Holy Spirit with each single person we invest in. Remember our friend uh, Bertoldo? Bertoldo de Giovanni, the, the non-Ninja Turtle uh, guy. Bertoldo de Giovanni dreamed of being a great artist. He dreamed of creating a great masterpiece that we would talk about long after he was gone. He, he didn't become a household name. No Ninja Turtle, sorry. I wonder, though, if he ever knew just how he succeeded. I mean, I wonder if he knew that his greatest masterpiece was Michelangelo himself. You may have a masterpiece that you're hoping to leave behind. I hope you do. I hope you want to leave something lasting, a legacy on this earth. Maybe a ministry, a mission. Maybe a book you want to publish, a legacy you want to leave. But I will tell you this. In all likelihood, your legacy is a person. Your masterpiece is probably a person. And that's the kind of masterpiece that has lasting value. Uh, Bertoldo Gi Giovanni, was a, he was a good artist. I don't want to say he wasn't. One of his gifts was working in bronze coins. You can see him holding one there. And here's a close-up of an actual coin. Uh, this, this is one of his best works. It's in the British Museum. And it's a depiction. I know you can see it in detail. A, a depiction of Jesus coming on the clouds. That's what's going on at the top there, and angels around him. This is a depiction of the last judgment. And for such a, a tiny scene, I mean, that, that coin was a big coin, but this is a little space to do all this detail in. For most people, when they see it, some of them say they, they feel just this familiarity, like it's a scene maybe they've seen somewhere before. And upon careful study, most people don't even realize why they feel they've seen this scene somewhere before, this tiny scene, Jesus coming on the clouds at the center until they remember the Sistine Chapel. One of the greatest masterpieces of all time where Michelangelo copied this scene from his mentor's coin and blew it up larger than life. So we really believe art history art appreciation students that Michelangelo probably held this coin, saw it, maybe even saw it being made, spent time studying it, turning over in his hand, marveling at the great work of art in miniature, and maybe he prayed a prayer to be twice the artist that his mentor was. 
to receive a double portion of his gift. And then he blew it up larger than life, more than double, this vision, this gift, tiny miniature into a masterpiece on a ceiling that people gaze at, probably more people than any other piece of art in the world look upon this one. Everyone who enters the Sistine Chapel knows this is Michelangelo's masterpiece. But now you know the backstory. The Michelangelo himself was a masterpiece too. And that Bertoldo can be proud that we do know his name, but that his relationship with his student was the masterpiece of his lifetime. I am not an artist, but I am working on a masterpiece. I hope that you are too. For me, I don't have to wait to see it framed and hanging in a gallery somewhere. I get to look at it every day. You are blessed to be a blessing. You, you're simply a vessel for God's grace to flow through from one generation of disciples to the next. How will that grace get there? What's the delivery system? How are you going to build the kingdom of God? Most likely it will be in your relationships with people. That's the masterpiece. God knew it from the beginning, and when he first looked on it, he called it very good. So be a vessel. Be blessed. Be a blessing.